This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. I'm Wendy Liu, uh, and I'm joined with by Richard Seymour today to talk about his book, The Twittering Machine. You can't really see the title that well, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say kind of a quick words to um, introduce the book, and then I'll turn it over to Richard to give a, a fuller account of it. So I think what's really special about this book is that it is a way of looking at a technology that isn't fixated on the technology itself. Um, so I'm, I'm someone who has a tech background, and I've written a book about Silicon Valley um, and the tech industry as well. And I think something that is uh, characteristic of most mainstream discourse about technology is that it focuses on the technology. It's focused on the founders who build the company. It's focused on the people who invested in it. It's focused on the specific attributes of the platforms. And while that's important, I do think that there is a much larger conversation to be had about the society in which that technology is introduced, noting that, you know, whatever, however the technology itself is constituted, it is shaped more broadly by the larger structures, social, political, economic, in of the society in which it is introduced, and that there is this compli- complicated interplay of, you know, how the technology actually exists and the, these larger questions of how society is structured. And I think that is a conversation we really need to be having at this point, given how much of an impact technology has had on the world. And I think uh, Richard's book is is a, is a wonderful exposition of these issues in a way that doesn't necessarily give us any neat answers. Um, I think there maybe aren't neat answers to be had, especially at this point in time, but it does leave us with these important questions and it helps us think through the the right framing of these questions. And I think that that is something we really, really do need right now. So without further, further ado, I'll turn it over to Richard. Thanks very much. So I'm just going to get through a, a brief talk here um, and then we'll go straight to the conversation. So <clears throat> the Twittering machine uh, that I discuss in the book isn't about hard drives and software. It's about writers and writing. So it's an industrialized system of writing, in fact, uh, the world's first ever mass open air writing experiment. And it's a rather strange system of writing because it's underwritten, as it were, by systems of digital writing that pay no heed to phonetic or semantic properties of, uh, say, alphabetic writing. Everything we see on the Internet, says Sandy Baldwin, is writing. Every file every window, every app on every device is writing. As in the matrix, the image that we see, even the image of letters and commas and full stops and so on, is an ideal abstract representation of far more complex systems of writing. Writing didn't begin with the alphabet, um, which of course represents the human voice, and not all writing is a congealment of the spoken word or the spoken thought. Writing began 
with knots and notches, uh, notched wood, quipos, knotted pieces of colored string, read uh, with practiced motions of the hand, rather like Braille is today. Before text, there was textiles. Many forms of writing have no reference whatsoever to the human voice. Um, seismographs, musical notation, circuit diagrams, knitting patterns, for example. So now writing begins in another way. It now begins with noughts and ones. The computerization of capitalism has upended the hierarchy of writing. In the past, there was a hierarchy of written authority, beginning with the holy text, constitutions, Bibles, royal decrees, and so on, all flowing down through churches and education systems, through the media, all the way down to the lowliest diarist or letter to the editor writer. Now we have a new constitution, one that no one was ever really consulted about, and it's written digitally, not alphabetically. Its writing doesn't represent voices, but automated human purposes. And every computer program, as Benjamin Bratton puts it, is a political program. The anarchist collective Tikkun refers to the cybernetic hypothesis that human and machine behaviors are controlled by programmed and reprogrammed feedback loops. Now the cybernetic constitution has looped us all into ever-expanding writing systems. We're writing more than ever before in human history. We're writing at school, at work, in our work breaks, in our toilet breaks, in our commutes, at parties. We're trying to get out of the party. Abruptly scripturient, that is, we are possessed by a violent desire to write. And what are we writing into being if not more digital images? To live in a world of digitally written images is to live in a simulacrum. So we have birthed the world's most profitable industry, the social industry, not social media. All media are social. Who could object to something called social media? It's like calling cigarettes friendship sticks. They can be used in that way, but that's not what they're for. The social industry emerged out of a capitalist appropriation of the cyber left, free stuff conversation, low-cost association, even protest, how to make money out of that. Before Twitter, there was TextMob, an app that was created for activists protesting outside the Democratic and Republican conventions in 2004. And to bypass aggressive policing, activists needed to decentralize their operations. And that necessitated a good communications infrastructure, one that couldn't be jammed by police. It needed to be inconspicuous so that organizers wouldn't be spotted and arrested. The answer? Design an app that relies on an already successful mass technology, mobile phones and SMS texting. And so everyone who signed up to this app would receive texts from other users updating them about the protest in real time. And it wasn't until 2008 that the city's lawyers actually figured out how the activists had outflanked such an intense police crackdown, and they started issuing subpoenas. By that time, however, one of TechSmob's designers had actually moved to a small venture capital-funded tech firm called Odeo. In 2006, he and his colleagues had delivered a presentation for the bosses of that firm uh, about the successes of TextMob. And shortly thereafter, the bosses brainstormed and they had this idea for a really cool app like, you know, texting, but in public. Twitter wasn't designed for activists, but to enable short bursts of meaningless communication, as the, tw uh, the name suggests. Unlike TextMob, it had no security, no protection from police surveillance because its whole economic model depended on surveillance. 
However, apart from this, there wasn't actually anything in principle to stop activists from using it. So Twitter was able to build its brand in a way through mass movements, in part courtesy of the State Department slogan, Twitter revolutions. We can go into how that slogan came about if you like. The industry um, then commodified radical desires and thrived also amid a crisis of sociality. The network also emerged during a stalemate for political organization. Indeed, because at some you know, basic ontological level, organizations consist of networks, it seemed as though the online network could substitute for traditional parties, bypass civil society leaderships, and birth a new kind of horizontalism. It also offered to make up for the massive decline in social interactions measurable on several indices over the last few decades. As one of Twitter's founders suggested, where people felt alone, where they were in crisis, something bad had happened, the network would be there. The Twittering machine was also born just as neoliberal capitalism 1.0 entered a, zero, uh, a serious historic crisis, and it in so doing, accelerated a crisis of inherited political authority, destroying the authority of journalists and news media, and also radically desupplementing politicians who turn out to be just as petty and nasty as most of the rest of the public, and suck revenues out of the dying print empires. It ended the old one-way traffic of ideological meaning. At the same time, just as uh, capital's crisis and austerity meant far less communal stuff and jobs available, the industry offered this abundance of free stuff. So, you know, you could go on TaskRabbit or Uber or Airbnb and commodify every last bit of spare time, every spare room, whatever you have free to make up lost income. Much as digitalization created new production efficiencies, new globally integrated supply chains, dissolved traditional modes of class organization, improved the surveillance capacities of capital, and created a more globally integrated vortex of capital integrated by finance. What does the industry ask in return for the conveniences that it offers? Because we are obviously neither consumers nor voters in a cyber democracy. It's neither a state nor a market. We're lab rats and we're wageless laborers. Far more than Adorno's culture industry, the social industry integrates us from above. It programs our interactions with an invariant written formula, producing new types of conformity that might be a bit unfamiliar. A strange new techno-political regime, it combines the surveillance powers of states, the market control of business empires, and the ideological power of mass media. Indeed, it might even be more sophisticated than mass media precisely because it has no ideological agenda. Um, it is in the reality shaping business and it reaches us on a level that is both highly massified insofar as it's uh, mass data, big data, and highly personalized insofar as it's algorithmically tailored for us and it reaches us on our phone and we keep in our pockets. It bisects business and politics and it has no message and yet it is profoundly ideological. More vividly now than ever before, the medium is the message, and that message is always close by. On the social industry, we have no rights, only incentives and controls, and the condition for our access to tools that seem to lubricate association and wayfinding is that we have to write constantly. Even when we're just watching a video or whatever, we are writing in the language of data, and we can write to anyone we like. We can write to celebrities, porn stars 
jihadists, politicians, but really we write to the machine. We confess our secrets and it takes a digital copy of the message and passes it on. What is then our incentive to participate in an industry like this? One answer that they give us, the bosses of the social industry, is addiction. You can see the guilty confessions of uh, former social industry bosses who talk about us as users, much as heroin addicts are users. Yet what is addiction? What do we mean by this? How can you be addicted to writing? Do we get a little dopamine buzz when we see the bright red notification alert? This is what the social industry actually thinks. Unfortunately, it's wrong. Dopamine doesn't give us a high. Um, neuro, uh, neurochemists and neuroscientists have been telling us this for a while. Addiction can be no more reduced to a chemical process than being in love. And perhaps addiction can be considered a form of love, a way of being devoted to the wrong things when the relationships in our lives disappoint us or don't work. So really, what are we addicted to? Apparently, we're addicted to likes, shares, the lure of celebrity on a machine where the goal is to cultivate a personal idol. Perhaps, except that like all celebrities, we're constantly drawn to self-destructive auto-iconoclasm. Addiction isn't all about pleasure. Smokers, heroin addicts, gamblers, they all know this. They're administering small doses of death. And so are we. We're hooked on a barrage of information, goading us into further interactions, and every feed is a force feed. You only have to scroll briskly through your timelines to see one or two or three items that will set you off for the rest of the day or drive you absolutely nuts. And the only catharsis is to type. And with the urge to write fast and the incentive of a competitive like, hand, like hunt, sorry, a culture formed by the values of hierarchy, status, and competition that are worshipped by a handful of Northern Californian men who broadly shoot these devices, what we type will, as often as not, be grandstanding, showboating, sadistic, backstabbing, trawling, facile, uninformed. Please follow me on Twitter at Leninology. Because this is what happens when politically generative relationships and emotions are commodified. We're devoted to a furnace of meaning where the somatic onslaught of information never selects for accuracy. A volatile combination of stock market of sentiments, 24-hour news, and neighborhood watch. Dominated by a network of media firms, politicians, marketing and PR agencies, corporations, micro-celebrities and macro-celebrities, and I suppose I should mention Russian bots and sock puppets who make up most of the traffic. They talk of freedom of information as the ultimate good. Information is never free. It's a system of controls and surveillance. Freedom of information, in this sense, is the industry's code for monopoly over its content, which must never be challenged by users or regulators or by democratic publics. The mass production of information, more now in recent years than in human history, actually makes the world more enigmatic, not less. Information is revenge porn, it's doxing, it's Tommy Robinson videos, it's QAnon. Information is necrotic. It's what's etched on your headstone and the stars over your grave. Study after study suggests that time on the social industry is correlated to increased depression, self-harm, and suicidal behavior. But if we weren't already more depressed than we've been for a long time, as other data suggests, would this be our remedy? 
And would the red pill be the powerful antidepressant that it so palpably is for so many young white men? We go on the machine because we're lonely, depressed, or bored, and it offers us an addictive remedy which makes us more lonely and more depressed. The social industry is a chronophage, a monster that eats time. At the Corpus Clock in Cambridge, the monster turns the wheel and it snaps its jaws shut to consume each second. An industry that monetizes time on device, as the gambling industry calls it, replaces the tick of the clock with key clicks and thumb taps, a near-death experience measuring out its approach. Tap, tap, tap. And the temporal experience of the social industry platforms is different from clock time. As in casinos or pubs, where signs of passing of time are blocked out to keep you there, the social industry absor absorbs you into a different temporal flow. Following Natalie Dowschel's work, we could call it the machine zone, a state akin to the ticker trance that stock market junkies used to fall into. The industry doesn't tell you the time, it gives you the age of each post, which is information about the state of the game so that you can roll the dice. It's also a temporality that's always intensifying, cresting towards culminations. Uh, J.M. Berger, a security intellectual writing in the context of ISIS, and its online recruitment strategies talks about the industry as a carrier for millennial contagion. Time on the social industry is apocalyptic time. If life is defined by what we attend to, the attention economy turns life into raw material for extraction. It drills into our lunch hours, our tube journeys, our gatherings, even sex, according to some surveys. Some averages then. And Please take these figures with a pinch of salt. I'm just uh, giving you something to work with here. 135 minutes a day is uh, what in one year was the average amount of time a global internet user spent on one of the social industry's platforms. In a lifespan averaging 71 years over the planet, that's 50,000 hours. It's actually gone up quite considerably since then. I suggest it's close to 65,000 hours. Addictions happen behind our backs in small decisions. I'll just have this one last drink. I'll just answer this one tweet. Tap, tap, tap. That's your life disappearing. We don't have to do this. So we're entitled to ask the minimum utopian question. What else could we be doing if not this? That's it. <coughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, and I, I want to start by kind of um, giving some context and why I appreciated this book so much. So kind of as I was saying at the beginning, uh, there there's a lot of tech criticism out there that doesn't really engage with questions of political economy or questions of how society could be different than what it is. And so I think what you offer in this book, um, as well as just the rest of your writing, is a way of critiquing uh, the technology and just the institutions that exist that is rooted in a, a radical vision in a, dare I say, utopian horizon of how the world could be something other than this profoundly lonely and inane system that we see around us. And, and yeah, you, you won't get a lot of this critique from within the tech industry. And that's kind of part of the problem because the people who have to work to create these systems that we're talking about, they have to shut off the part of themselves that tells them this is wrong. 
they have to turn that off because they can't be a productive worker if they're constantly questioning, why am I doing this? Is this good for the world? Is this what I want to do with my life? They, they just won't be doing very, very well at their job. And, and so I think it, in a sense, it's very, it's unfortunate that there aren't people in the tech industry who have firsthand knowledge of the how these systems operate, who are able to give us those critiques. But on the other hand, it's entirely understandable. And so I think it's so valuable to have this kind of um, searching critique and insight, um, especially given that you draw very heavily on, you know, a firsthand knowledge, like a reporting of how these industries work. You rely on you know, just analysis that engages with the political economy of them, how they get funded. So I think it's really important to recognize that these companies and these platforms are created in a particular way that is determined primarily by the larger economic economic systems in which they operate, right? Like you talked about the founding of Twitter and how um, it started out as this, it was kind of influenced by TechSmob and then you know, it turned into this thing funded by venture capitalists and venture capitalists have their own idea of what a successful startup is. And so there are maybe other ways that something like Twitter could have turned out, but those paths were all foreclosed by the fact that there is a particular funding model that is common in the industry and it's kind of difficult to deviate it from, from it in a substantial way. Uh, and yeah, and so just, um, I don't want to start it out by giving this context and um, asking, so asking you to elaborate on this one quote that you mentioned. Uh, let's see, I think this is in the first chapter where you talk about um, how we shouldn't think of social media as a thing in itself. And instead you write, drawing on Lewis Mumford, that all media is social and all machines are social. Machines are social before they're technological. And I was wondering if you could just kind of expand on what you mean by that. You know, how how does it change our definition of the term social media if we put our emphasis on the social part of the term instead of the way we usually think of it as just, you know, a subset of the technology industry? What does it mean to, how does it change our analysis and our actions if we think of it primarily as this, as something that is social? Well, I suppose if we start off with the idea that a tool, for example, is a medium of a relationship between one person and another or one person and uh, his or her earthly environment. Um, already that uh, sort of shifts the uh, emphasis away from, I suppose, uh, ideas of gadgetry. Um, and the, I think there's a, a certain um, magical thinking that comes around technology, you know, um, the idea that it's... Um, it's the golden ticket in your pocket. You know, this phone is going to bring you the message you've been waiting for one day. You won. You won the lottery, even though you never played. Whatever it happens to be, um, it's going to bring you good news. Um, so that's that's a kind of magical thinking about technology, which is um, an alienated version of human powers, of social powers. Um, if we bring it back to uh, how technology is socially constituted, how, in fact, it is in itself a congealment of certain uh, social relationships, um, then I think we begin to ask, well, if we're saying that uh, code and algorithm is in a way automated human purposes, or I think Kathy O'Neill calls it automated opinion, um, whose opinions count? Whose purposes count? Whose op opinions are being automated for the rest of us? And how can we uh, change that dynamic? Now, Obviously, this is not straightforward because we're up against a power that um, 
is actually in some ways overwhelming. We're talking about different vectors of, say, uh, Department of Defense in the United States, um, various other um, uh, in industrial departments, uh, Department of Energy and so on. Uh, you're talking about military. You're talking about, uh, obviously, venture capital, uh, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and uh, university departments as well, very heavily involved in this. Um and also, you have to link it back to the whole project of a certain kind of modernization, which I think uh, you can trace this back, certainly as far as the Internet goes, and its um, generalization traces back to the Clinton administration building uh, the lines um, for fiber optic cable along former railway lines and so on. So a heavily material infrastructure was necessary. Um, and they didn't do this because there was, you know, mass public demand for this or anything like that. They thought this is going to be great for projecting American power and also for competing globally. Um, and they weren't entirely wrong about this. I mean, to take um, a fairly mundane example, the fact that in the United Kingdom we're having protests uh, against lockdown led by people who support QAnon, um, the fact that in Poland you can see uh, sort of right-wing protests led by people carrying Trump banners, that's a sense that that tells me that there's a profound Americanization. I mean, it's an ongoing process, this, but there's been an accelerated Americanization of, uh, you know, culture, particularly in the Anglosphere, but not just. So um, I wanted to look at different possible models. Now, I'm not, as you will have picked up, I, I mean, I never wanted to write a book about technology in my life, and I didn't want to know anything about technology. You know, I'm like a typical leftist. Just don't tell me anything about technology. What I care about is social relationships and so on. Um, so, but I tried to figure out, uh, are there any other ways in which it has been done? And I looked at Minitel in France, um, which I, I discussed in the last chapter. And I don't, I'm not holding this up as a model. But just as uh, to show that uh, it has been done in different ways, the Minitel was the Internet before the Internet, you know, and it was a public sector institution. Um, you could get your little computer terminal free from the local authority. Um, and basically anybody who could uh, pay the license um, could have an online, their equivalent of a website, had many of the same things that the modern Internet does. But it doesn't seem to have been as pathological um, as the internet has become. So that suggests to me that um, perhaps the whole project of making an internet that basically congeals the aesthetics and the ethics of a mall um, might have brought with it certain disadvantages. There are lots of other ways in which I could have answered that question. Ultimately, I do think that um, uh, there, I mean, I talk about this, there is a um, uh, a fascist potential there, and it's not uh, fascist potential in the sense of um, uh, you know centralized revolutionary nationalist movement on the brink of taking power. Rather, it's the kind of lone wolf style of uh, fascism um, that I think is um, boiling away there, and I think that might have something to do with the way in which the internet is organized. Perhaps it doesn't have to be organized in that way. I want to. Bring us back to the Minitel point, because I think that epitomizes this tension I see throughout throughout your book, which is that on the one hand, you talk a lot about how the current political moment is one that breeds alienation. It's one that breeds distrust of authority. And it makes sense that we're all you know, addicted to the horrors of our horror devices because we're living in a world in which horror has become the norm. But at the same time, you also talk about the 
potential of the technology itself in shaping a certain future. And so the Minitel chapter I thought was really interesting because I do, I, I like the idea that if we had an infrastructure that wasn't commercialized, that it would bring us to a very different vision of how the internet could operate. But at the same time, I was wondering if you could reflect on, you know, the, the tension there and to what degree is there something latent within the technology itself that overdetermines how it's turned out? And also, you know, to what extent does the broader socioeconomic system influence and, you know, limit the possibilities for how any technology, no matter how radical, how utopian could have turned out. And so, yeah, just could you, I don't, I, I you know, I, I know you can't answer that question fully, but like, how can we think through that question? That's a good point. Um, well, I suppose <clears throat> the, the starting point there for me is that the, the tech lash, the liberal tech lash, uh, Maybe I could go a bit further and say it's the tech lash of uh, never Trump Republicans and, you know, um, middle of the road Democrats, hashtag resistance people. Their version of critique of social media is very ultimately very technophobic. And it's the complete inversion of their previous prior technophilia um, and their, you know, belief. Um, uh, you can go back to look at what Hillary Clinton and Obama used to say about social media. They really believed that it was an emancipatory tool. And, I, you know, most of the left did too, let's be clear about that. Um, but, uh, you know, after 2016, it completely flipped over. And so we're, we're blaming the technology in a narrow way for, for example, I mentioned the uh, data on depression, self-harm, suicidal uh, behavior, and so on. Well, uh, this is complicated by the fact that there are many other factors going in society that might have led people to feel that way, um, to feel depressed. So my, um, my way of looking at this is to say, I think that what has happened is that the social industry has catalyzed and intensified and potentiated certain trends that were already at work there. So, for example, when we talk about the so-called lone wolves, uh, there's a fellow in the United Kingdom who um, I'm going to forget his name now, uh, but he uh, committed a murder uh, outside Finsbury, uh, Finsbury Park Mosque. Um, and he it took him about three weeks from the, you know, the first time he decided that uh, he thought Muslims were a problem because he saw a docudrama on television to uh, watching uh, and consuming a lot of uh, Tommy Robinson, you know, the British fascist YouTube videos and whatnot. Um, and uh, that turned him into a soldier um, in the war against Islam, as he saw it. And he said, uh, you know, he was prepared to kill all Muslims. He was psychologically primed for genocide. Um, and if you look at the broader context, of course, uh, you know, I mean, he was a depressed man. Uh, he was uh, mentally unwell. He was suicidal. He was unemployed. He was alcoholic. Um, and you, if you were to sort of study the causes of those problems, you would trace them back to wider social determinants. You know, um, the fact that I mentioned uh, the way the social industry is cashed in on a crisis of sociality, the fact that we uh, tend to meet our friends less, the, ten the fact that we tend to have uh, less romantic uh, interactions. Um, you know, there's a lot of moral panic literature now about how young people are not having enough sex and they're not, you know, all of this stuff. But th this has real deep social causes. We're not uh, going to pubs. Well, we're not going to pubs at all now. But, um, you know, th this, this is, um, these are long-term trends. And I think... 
if you um, if you follow that that path from uh, say somebody who has been um, in some ways uh, rejected, you know, he's not been able to find work. Um, he's been harmed, uh, injured by society in various ways. Um, and then he's been interpolated by this device, uh, the social industry. Um, clearly, he, he didn't have to go in that direction. In the past, it's possible that some other kind of organization, say a communist party or a labor party organization, might have wanted to reach out to him, recruit him um, and give him a different account of his misery. You know, instead of blaming all on Muslims or whatever, um, so that would have been a different kind of technology. Um, instead, what he encountered was um, what I called a kind of uh, social industry far right resonance machine, where essentially the social industry benefits from the far right making a lot of money um, as micro celebrities and generating and finding audiences for them. I mean, there was uh, statistics a few years ago suggesting that. Trump's um, value to Twitter was about equivalent to $2 billion, about a fifth of its total value. Now, that's just a guesstimate. Who knows? But we can say that he certainly brings a lot of attention to Twitter. And we can say certainly that um, the far right does very well out of YouTube and Facebook and so on. And so that uh, generation of money also um, loops in plenty of attention. It keeps these platforms on the front page of every newspaper. So that's what I mean by the resonance machine. And that's that's how I would suggest um, these um, sort of sources of personal misery um, were politicized. So these are vectors of politicization. And, you know, um, given that um, so much is said about, you know, what's wrong with the technology, I think it's really important to say uh, that it's, it's the experiential dimension that it works in. And it's the ways in which these politically generative emotions are captured. Um, and it's not like, you know, YouTube sets out to red pill anybody. They don't care. It just so happens that there seems to be some sort of elective affinity um, between uh, YouTube as it currently exists, um, current sort of far right propensities in society, and of course, the audience that is out there for them. Definitely. Yeah. And I think um, something, a point that you make throughout all these anecdotes that you draw on is that there, there's a question of, you know, what is society doing to these people that makes them so susceptible to these algorithms and these recommendations um, and, you know, the content they're getting. And I think that is a question that isn't really asked enough um, with the recent discourse on, you know, recommendation algorithms and radicalization. There's a tendency to, in a sense, um, point the blame at these tech companies. And yeah, sure, we we don't want to absolve them. Sure, they should be held accountable for the, the things they've done. But also, if we limit our analysis to just what these tech companies are doing, then we miss all of these broader problems that, you know, it, it doesn't allow us to address the problems, which are that people are very, feel very alienated. People feel very alone. They There is a lack of meaning, essentially. It's all been cannibalized by these capitalist structures that turn everything into surplus value. And it is very, very hard to build, to run a society that way. It is very hard to have any sort of functioning 
uh, social, I don't know, spirit or anything. It's, it's hard to feel connected to something and to have um, a morality that can bind us all together in, in this world. And, you know, it's something I think you do very well in your book is you make us ask the question, well, why, why is that? And, you know, why do we try to blame this all on technology in a way that, you know, many of these, uh, you know, the, the, like the tech clash people that you mentioned, why do they want us to think that it's something that could be solved if these companies had more ethics and, you know, they had chief ethics officers or they had more diverse boards or something. And it's like, well, sure. I'm sure that would go some way towards solving it, but, um, I guess to, you know, to, to those on the left, it feels very obvious that these problems are deeper problems of capitalism and that no matter what these tech companies do, they cannot solve that problem. And to actually address the kind of root causes of the, the widespread alienation that people feel, um, and just, you know, everything else that characterizes current uh, hellscape, you need to go beyond figuring out how to tweak YouTube recommendations better or Twitter recommendations. Instead, we need just to imagine a profoundly different set of values that will guide how we live together. And that is not a question that I think um, even the most, uh, I don't know, the, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought, but I think even even the most um, thoughtful tech critical person, you know, who worked at Google or something and is like now writing a book about how we need to reform the industry. I feel like they're, they're not inclined to think about that because they've maybe taught their whole, been taught their whole lives that the solution is still capitalism and that there's still a world within this kind of capitalist, um, system of meaning that can produce the kind of outcome we want. And I think what you're, you're suggesting with, with your work, you know, not just this book, but everything you've written is that we have to look beyond the horizon of the world that we're in now. So I think I, yeah, I really appreciated that from you. And, um, just a question I wanted to jump to is, uh, this is, um, sorry, sorry if, I, if it's a, it's a bit abrupt, but this really stood out to me, um, on page 101, when you're talking about the, the kind of toxic tendencies that are produced by some of these social media platforms. Um, you say that we may need an anti-identity politics, um, and, and you describe that as a resistance to trends that force us to spend too much time on the self, particularly a narrow, depressing, and ultimately coercive idea of what a person can be. And I think that relates a lot to, um, just what I was saying before about the, the kind of subjects that we become in the system and how we all become incredibly alienated and attached to a particular notion of how we should relate to each other, how we should relate to the world. Could you expand a little more on what you mean by anti-identity politics and, you know, how that contrasts with the, you know, the more typical understanding of identity politics and what would characterize an alternative to it? Yeah. Um, well, I think that in a way, uh, the social industry thrives on a certain kind of identity politics. Um, this is not identity politics as it would have been understood by the Combahee Collective, uh, Combahee Rebel Collective, for example. This is not um, necessarily the politics of militant struggle against oppression along the axis of um, an identity that's formed by oppression. There's uh, still something to be said for that, uh, although I, I think there are also criticisms could be made there. But what I'm interested in is the kind of reified identity that emerges from uh, generalized celebrity. So, you know, the condition for participating uh, 
in this machinery uh, is that you have to be uh, a little celebrity. You have to have your little profile picture, um, and they all look more or less the same, and you have to have a little description of yourself, uh, which usually, I mean, obviously people relate to it in different ways. People can be ironic about it, but usually it's a bit self-glorifying. You know, you describe your achievements. It's a bit of a CV. Um, and then, of course, there's the conditions on which you can post stuff, um, you know, how long your tweet can be. Uh, or on Instagram, it has to be a certain uh, shape of photograph. There's a certain range of filters and all the rest of it. Um, and essentially, uh, and then, of course, there's the uh, conditions of interacting with anybody. Um, you can retweet, you can like, um, or, you know, you can... Um, uh, sort of witch hunt the person for saying something bad on the internet. Uh, I mean, there's there's a range of things you can get up to, but they're all limited a lot by the fact that you're building up a certain personal cachet. Uh, in other words, uh, as I put it somewhere, I think you're creating a personal icon, um, a, a sort of uh, an icon that in, invariably, like all celebrities, you will find grows larger than yourself and doesn't really accurately represent you. Um, it represents it represents the version of you that's living your best life, and none of us live that. Um, you know, your your meals on Instagram are always too good looking. You know, your holidays look too nice. Your family are too nice. Your selfies are too hot. You know, all of this stuff. Um, and uh, the whole thing about it is that um, if you start to invest in that image, the way in which you reflect on your uh, your actual experience um, will be uh, you will tend to feel a bit worse about yourself. Um, so, for example, um, you know the more you get hooked on the idea of yourself that you represent in a series of selfies with uh, a, a, the same filter and roughly from the same angle, because they get a lot of likes. Um, and by the way, um, there's actually uh, you know published guides as to how to become successful on Instagram, and they do tell you um, go with success. If people like the same thing, just post the same thing over and over again. Okay, so um, but if you do that, of course, you know um, you're going to be using these filters to iron out your facial flaws and whatever else. You're going to become you're going to like the person you are a lot less. Um, and in a way, it becomes quite oppressive. It becomes a sort of manic labor. So that's the kind of that's the kind of identity politics that I'm talking about. And it's it doesn't have to, but it can intersect with other claims on identity. So that, for example, your personal celebrity identity can be sticked on the fact that you are uh, a badass who's um, you know taking down the patriarchy, taking down white privilege, and so on. And you can build up a whole online identity about that. But of course, if it's based on you know the protocols of the internet um, and most social industry platforms, the chances are that it will be based around uh, the values of individual competitive hierarchy, um, you know, struggle for attention, struggle for survival, and that you will stab someone else in the back on the turn of a dime, um, you know, because they said the, uh, something bad or something could be mis misconstrued on the internet. Um, and that's, um, that's what I mean by a narrow, depressing, and ultimately coercive idea of what a person can be, because it's not just that you coerce yourself in various ways, but we participate in coercing one another. Um, and I've been, by the way, I should specify, 
I mean, in no way is this an aloof finger-wagging book. I can't claim that I haven't done any of this stuff. I have. I've done all of it. Uh, I've been the online vigilante hounding some poor celebrity for saying some bad thing. Um, and I've been the idiot trolling people. And, you know, I've, I've been – I'm sure I've been the reply guy and all of that stuff, you know. Um, and it's – you are kind of forced into these stereotype, stereotype patterns of behavior because there's really no time – to think beyond the simple mechanism of stimulus response. The whole thing is a bizarre behaviorist contraption. Um, and anything more that you might be um, has to be left out of this narrow image that you're constructing. So this is why I talk about uh, cultivating forgetting and disconnection. Forget who you are, because who you are is a myth. It's a fantasy. And this, you know, this goes back to Lacanian psychoanalysis, you know, the idea that the ego, it's, it's not something to be defended. Ultimately, it's a fantasy. Um, and uh, disconnect from uh, the kind of, I'm not suggesting uh, sort of a sociopathic disconnection from the social, quite the contrary. I'm suggesting disconnecting from the uh, constant goading the constant nudging, you know, your feed constantly gives you something to be angry about. Um, and if you happen to be the type of person like I am, one of the first things you do when you get up and you're having your breakfast is check one of your feeds. Um, just to see, I mean, in my case, see what the news is. And invariably, you're going to see some stuff that's going to wind you up and you're going to start typing. Maybe if we could find a way um, on an individual level, I think there's a case for finding a way to not do that. Um, and change our relationship to these tools, um, if tools is the right word. Um, collectively, I think we might um, be walking into um, a kind of socioeconomic addiction where essentially these tools are so essential to our lives um, that the advantages they give can't be turned down even by somebody who's quite powerful. Um, and you can see this happening with smart cities. That's going to become a, a major factor. You know, we're going to become a much more managed population and a much more surveyed population. Um, so the struggle will be how do we collectively disconnect from that? And how do we forget um, all the ways in which we've become libidinally invested in this system? Yeah, I think we're both guilty of spending too much time on Twitter. Uh, and I definitely resonate with some of, you know, the toxic behaviors you you describe having, you know, for a time thought that, oh, this is this is just how we all are now. This is like this is a fine way to be. This is it's fine to feel angry and riled up and just, you know, yell at people online all the time. This is very productive. And then it, it takes a while for the, the high to wear off. Uh, and yeah, so I really appreciated that. But I wanted to zoom in on your the point you just made about um, population management, because there's a chapter, um, chap the chapter that's called We Are All Dying. You bring up the the notion of um, post-democracy, you're citing Colin Crouch. And I think this is really, really important because um, this ties into how the tech industry operates. Because even though you're, you know, you're talking not necessarily specifically about the tech industry, I think more generally about neoliberalism and the kind of current political moment, I think this quite accurately describes a train of thought within Silicon Valley, within some of the the more lofty, you know, just echelons of the industry where there are these, the people in power really seem to believe that it's not a matter of um, political contest, that they can run companies in a way that's apolitical. And all they have to do is just 
manage things as best as they can. They have to, you know, go towards this notion of progress. And of course, it's a notion of progress that um, implies a particular use of technology, a particular private ownership of technology, a particular distribution of wealth. But for them, in their minds, it's not political. It's just how things are. Um, and I think there's a sense in which you know, our current political moment, which feels devoid of politics, where anything that upholds the status quo is cast as apolitical, where it kind of makes sense where you have the people in positions of power in these tech companies who are seduced by this delusion that they are themselves apolitical and that they're merely pushing humanity forward in the most optimal way. They're not engaging in, you know, they're not bringing emotions. They're just rational. They're just like rationally bringing forward this technology. And that allows them to cast their opponents as irrational and as not wanting to move humanity forward. And I think this is, um, there's a strong anti-Luddite trend. And, you know, you, as you describe in your book, the Luddites are often mischaracterized. Uh, They are not, you know, just anti-technology for the sake of it. They were instead responding to a particular, um, essentially class war. So I was wondering if you could touch more on that, you know, how the, the current moment we're in this, the way very political questions of distribution and control and how society should be are somehow cast as apolitical and that the people who run these companies are able to get away by saying that what they're doing is just in the best interest of everyone. You know, they support free speech. They support um, this apolitical infrastructure. And, and by doing so, it allows them to elide these very political questions of how these platforms should be governed, what kind of speech should be allowed, um, and, you know, how do they manage to get away with that? You know, I mean, it's interesting. Um, first of all, the, the stuff about humanity. Um, I, I remember Elon Musk uh, tweeting at somebody, uh, humanity rocks. And this was um, in reference to the idea, that, you know, you might conquer Mars, but really, they they never really mean humanity in its uh, teeming mass. They mean, uh, as much of uh, the early Enlightenment did, to be frank, um, a small subsection of humanity um, who are, are deemed to be included in in history. Um, so you know, um, I, I also know of examples of what you're talking about. I'm sure you you know much better than I do, uh, having been in the system. Um, but um, I remember reading about uh, one of the bosses of um, Peter Thiel's company, PayPal. Uh, no, 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 it was, a, it was one of his other outfits um, who claimed to be a socialist and a progressive and ended up making technology that helped Trump uh, separate um, parents and children uh, at the border. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, you're probably talking about Palantir. Yes. That's yeah, that. his other company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, and this was justified in, in apolitical terms as, you know, of course it's our job to help our government, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I think um, in terms of the um, idea of population management, um, and I, because I think ultimately it's very clear from everything they say that they don't really believe in democracy uh, in the traditional sense. Not that they're a fascist or anything like that, um, but I think that they really believe in um, a version of B.F. Skinner's utopia, the idea that people can be managed uh, for their own betterment and their own happiness. People don't really know what they want. Right? They're not capable of forming um, a, a democratic demand. 
um, or even a consumer demand, what they say they want, um, when you do the beta testing, they, they, they apparently want something else. So people lie, people can't be trusted, or they don't know what they want. Um, and so the question is, um, how do we um, bypass unreliable human beings? And of course, you know, data is one way of doing it. So the data will um, disclose how people use these tools, and therefore we can work out what they really like and what they don't. Of course, in uh, Skinner's Utopia, there was uh, somebody who had to, you know, basically decide what the priorities were um, and what the values of the commune were. Um, and so it is today. Um, in, you know, there, they, there has to be somebody who's deciding uh, what is worth um, uh, pursuing. Uh, so if you have a, a behavioral system set up to teach people how to behave, which essentially is what um, uh, they believe these uh, technologies are. They're teaching consumers how to respond to advertising correctly, or they're teaching people how to use their tools correctly, and so on and so on. Um, well, that relies on them and a small group of people knowing what is worth teaching and what it, you know. And I think that um, there's uh, probably a lot of factors going into this, but I sense that part of it might be the hubris of the billionaire, the, the sort of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, um, the kind of people who, because precisely because of their immense success and because they've been taught to believe in meritocracy, um, uh, really fundamentally believe that they must know what's right for humanity, that their, their narrow set of skills that they've been able to use um, uh, to, to exploit an opportunity an opportunity structure in a capitalist market economy at a particular point in history, that must give them some generalized insight um, into humanity's problems. And actually, I think that um, you can trace this back to um, maybe the origins of conservative thought. You can trace it back to Burke and, you know, the idea that the ruling class is, um, in a way, uh, the reasoning executive of the body politic. Um, and... You know, um, I think that there's uh, an ideology manifest in neoliberalism, which is that uh, if you run a business, you probably know how to run anything. You know, uh, I remember when this started, you know, they got uh, the boss of a supermarket to start running the NHS or determining how the National Health Service would be run as if he would know anything about it. But, you know, now we've got Serco uh, running our COVID response. Um, they have no idea what they're doing, but they're a management firm. So they know how to manage and that's the most important thing. So this is our dominant ideology today. Now, faced with that, if you don't have an appropriate um, kind of left-wing challenge to that, or an appropriate democratic challenge at least, what you end up with, I think, uh, is a kind of um, uh, a reactionary response, a perverse, um, uh, thwarted kind of utopianism, uh, wherein, uh, say, millions of people believe that Donald Trump is freeing the world from a conspiracy of cannibals and pedophiles, uh, Satan worshipping pedophiles, no less. We've never seen that before. Um, so that um, essentially, in other words, it gets politicized one way or another. The priorities get politicized, and people start to question not just um, how you're doing such and such a thing and your competence, which used to be the only thing you were allowed to criticize, you know, the competence of this or that leader, but people start to question the real fundamentals of how knowledge is made. I mean, this is one of the things we're saying. You talked about a uh, crisis of meaning. I think that's absolutely right. I think we're living through a crash of meaning. Um, I think. 
in some ways, late capitalism uh, encourages us to adopt a recklessly trivial attitude to our lives. It's, you know, it's always the next fix, the next hit, the next buzz. Go, you know, go and buy something, go get a drink, you know, go on a holiday, go buy a car, whatever it happens to be, and never to have a real executive overview of your life and never really to think that you are actually alive, that you're not just something being pushed around by market forces or whatever it happens to be. Um, so uh, hmm, I've lost the thread there a little bit, but uh, I think you can see where I was going with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, returning to the point that you mentioned about how, you know, users don't know what they want. I think this is something, this is, this maxim is so common in the tech industry to the point that we don't even question it anymore. I think it's, it's just an assumption. You don't have to say it. Everyone knows, you know, when you propose a new idea that of course the users don't know what they want. So there's no reason to think about what they might want. And there's a sense in which that does make does have some value because when you're talking about the kind of technology that, or a feature that users have never, you know, people have never come across before. Sure. They don't understand how it works. But on the other hand, I think this is, there's something about it that's profoundly upsetting and concerning because it implies, you know, tying back to what we're talking about, about this post-democratic system of population management. If users really don't know what they want, then why do you need anything approaching democracy? And this, sense that, um, you know, the people in charge are the ones who are best equipped to govern the system and to make the decisions that feeds really nicely to, you know, the broader, um, structures of capitalism, where you have, uh, the reason that the capitalist class gets so much of the award is because they're the only ones who know how to pr produce things, right? Like, of, of course we need their expertise because they're the only ones who know how to do anything, you know, consumers and workers, they, they don't know how to, they don't know what they want. They don't know how to make anything happen. And so this is why we need this, you know, ruling class that controls everything because they're the only ones who can steward humanity and keep, uh, keep everybody alive. And I think this is a, it's a very similar kind of assumption that's baked into how these tech companies operate. And that also makes it very hard for anyone to question, you know, why should this tech company be run like a, like a capitalist corporation, why can't it be broken up? Why can't it be decentralized? Why can't it be nationalized? And it's very hard to ask that because they like to sell themselves as, you know, just the these these really brilliant entrepreneurs who are the only people who know what users want, and that's why they are billionaires. Um, and so I wanted to jump from there into some of the audience questions that we're getting. Uh, one of the questions we're getting is, I'm not really sure what what this is, but there's something called the SSB protocol, um, and it is is a fully distributed agent-centric alternative to Twitter, which puts control back into the user's hands. Yeah, I wish I knew more about this, but um, just, I mean, uh, Richard, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but how, like, how do you feel about alternatives to these platforms that are more decentralized and are more about giving power to the users? You know what? Um, uh, every time I do a, a version of this talk somewhere, somebody comes to me and says, you know, there's this real great alternative. Um, there's something called Mastodon, which is great for left wing people, social justice people, etc. Um, and, you know, more power to them. But of course, um, you know, and, and obviously we should learn from them to figure out what our models are going to be because they're not the model. They are uh, alternatives that are building up within a, a, a landscape dominated by these uh, multinational corporations, um, which are just happen to be the most profitable corporations in the world today and probably the most politically powerful. Um, so 
the, our struggle is to try to, um, I suppose, digest the um, knowledge accumulated by those alternatives and through them, um, and to try to come up with uh, coherent, first of all, um, I suppose uh, there would be, in a mitigatory sense, some regulatory lessons we could learn from them. Uh, second of all, more importantly, we could come up with alternative models of how platforms could be run um, and who could run them. For example, um, I'm always looking for a, a useful um, sort of strategically pointed mediation. In other words, yes, we know ultimately we want full communism, but what are we going to do now? Well, I suppose in the UK context, there's been talk about what if we had um, a public service platform? Um, you could launch it under the sign of the BBC. You know, I mean, the BBC is, we've got many criticisms of the BBC, entirely justified. However, it has a lot of global cachet. Um, it's got plenty of money. Um, it's very widely supported. It's one of the last genuinely trusted broadcasters. Um, whether it should or shouldn't be, that's not the point. The point is, if they were to launch a platform, it would have a chance of success. And if they were to say, we will not take your data, we're not going to try and get you hooked, and we're going to make sure that the way things are arranged is such that you're unlikely to come across um, people um, live streaming something awful, um, you know, um, and maybe also we're, we're not going to tolerate things like um, bogus conspiracy theories. Obviously, that, that raises a whole series of problems, as in who gets to decide you know, um, uh, we've seen this uh, recent controversy with Twitter uh, shutting down the story about Hunter Biden. Uh, that's that's a different, you know, that's a different version of the same problem. Actually, it's the same people deciding what constitutes free speech and what doesn't. Um, but nonetheless, I think we could think about ways in which that could be an alternative. The problem um, is ultimately um, how much how much of this is about people being people. And I, I genuinely raise this in a way that uh, is not intended to imply an answer. I don't know. I don't know how much this darkness is just about human beings. Um, I do know that um, some of the alternatives that were set up, um, uh, there was one I think it was called LO, um, still around actually, um, and it was set up as like a minimalist uh, alternative to Facebook. Um, and it wasn't going to try and get you addicted, and it didn't have any nasty stuff. It was quite boring because of that, I think. I mean, I think that's the danger, you know, that, you, you know, the, what to, because we haven't figured out what the hell is so addictive about a three-hour-long prison planet rant about libtards and, you know, con, uh, cultural Marxism. What is so addictive about that? We don't know, but we do know that it does seem to have a, have a way of getting under people's skins. Um, uh, you know, we also haven't figured out, uh, take the QAnon stuff. QAnon um, seems to have a bit of perpetual motion about it. Um, and one of the ways it works is to cultivate digital apophenia. Apophenia is this sort of apprehension of something uncanny, like a, a weird coincidence. And of course, you know, the whole thing is based upon um, the users, the anons, discovering these weird resonances between this things that this Q idiot has said and things that have happened in politics. I think the most popular thing was somebody requested that Q get the phrase tip top into a Trump speech. And like a few months later, standing next to a white rabbit, he said the word tippy top or something like that. Um, and they went nuts. They went ballistic. But 
you know, you can see how that um, people can become hooked on that kind of feeling. I remember that feeling from, I mean, I was never into it, but the 9-11 truth stuff, I could see why it was so alluring for people. You know, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. The first time you hear that, you're like, no, no way. And, um, you know, but that was the the way the whole thing worked. So so there's something uh, addictive about uh, online misogyny, racism, homophobia, uh, sort of um, gross-out humor. Uh, anti-Semitism, um, something addictive maybe about fascism. Uh, Adorno actually had a few words about this. You know, he talked about the anti-Semitic fantasies of the far right and, you know, the, the authoritarian personality. And one of the things he said was, first of all, no matter how terrifying um, their image is, you know, um, of uh, these satanic Jews dominating the world, and today I suppose it would be satanic pedophiles uh, linked to Hollywood or whatever, um, no matter how terrifying, it's ultimately reassuring um, because in some ways it makes sense. It makes sense of the world uh, when it may be actually quite chaotic. But also um, it it has a propensity to escalate, you know, a, a bit like uh, porn. You know, you always want a version of the same thing, but more extreme, you know, over and over again. So I hear. Um, so essentially, um, the, the, we have to figure out the content um, is addictive because it reaches into something about human beings. We have to figure out how much of it is about human beings and how much of it is about technology and then separate out another set of questions, which is how much of it is about the way human beings are constituted today now and how much of it is about um, just just who we are in, intrinsically. you know. And th- these are questions that uh, I don't think we have the answers to yet. So, you know, um, maybe the appropriate attitude to have is not um, dismissive, but experimental. We try things out. And uh, as with organizing, as with politics, we try things out because we're in a, in a moment of transition and there's a chance that we'll alight upon something that will actually work. I like that. Yeah. And I I also admit I was briefly seduced by conspiracy theories around 9-11. I watched that um, Loose Change video. And for a time I was like, wow. Oh, okay. I guess this is just how the world is. And I didn't question it until a few years later. But I, I think, you know, I mean, you touch on this in your book, but part of the reason conspiracy theories are so resonant with people is because we live in a world that is filled with conspiracy of a different sort. And, you know, so that people are hungering for explanations that make sense of just how chaotic and horrible everything seems. And yeah, it does feel comforting to know that even if the people in positions of power are these abhorrent, immoral, terrible people, at least there are people in charge of this. At least there's someone who knows what we're doing because, you know, maybe if we can just like get rid of them, then we'll be on the right track again, as opposed to the, you know, a much more nihilistic and concerning explanation, which is that we're on this driverless train and we have no idea where we're going. And there is no one, there's no one person you can get rid of that will fix it. And I think that's, that's harder to grasp. It's hard, it's harder to deal with. It's harder to fully accept because that implies a very different understanding of the world. Um, and yeah, so I wanted to go to another audience question. Let's see. So the question, I don't know who sent this in, but it's Richard already touched on the way the platforms aren't necessarily consciously bolstering the far right, but can he talk a little bit more about the way the far right has consciously 
consciously use social media as a recruitment tool. Given that the nature of the machine seems to help the fascists, what can we do to most effectively oppose them? Do we fight them on their own terms online or elsewhere or both? That's a really good question. Um, I'm just um, sort of digging up some uh, statistics here uh, in relation to that, because, I mean, I mentioned Trump earlier, but actually Trump is not the more interesting um, part of this. I mean, Trump is obviously the the, the sort of the, the figure that's mainstreaming a lot of far-right ideology. But I wanted to bring up some uh, statistics, you know, just some figures um, relevant to um, various figures who've made a lot of money out of um, the social industry. So first of all, of course, is Alex Jones. Now, we know that Alex Jones has been banned from a lot of platforms now. Um, and, you know, there's a few others who've been banned. I have to say, I mean, by and large, you know, this is, I'm, I'm, I feel no sympathy for them whatsoever. I'm, you know, very happy for them to be driven off their platforms so they're deprived of their uh, money making machine. Alex Jones um, made $5 million in 2014 alone. And most of that came from his um, social industry advertising. So he would, I mean, basically his ranting, you could almost say it's like filler content for what his real business was, which was uh, male supplements, super male vitality, caveman, things like that. Now, I think the whole idea of a male supplement is kind of interesting, um, uh, you know, because it, it uh it implies that uh, masculinity has been um, castrated in some way. You know that it's uh, it's missing something, and so you need uh, you need something to uh, give you that beast energy again, as uh, you know, so you can be like Alex Jones. Um, let me see, Tommy Robinson. Tommy Robinson um, used to make a lot of money from YouTube. YouTube, um, uh, in at the time that uh, Robinson was making a lot of money back in 2013, paid the average uh, user $7.60 per thousand views, probably a lot more now, to be frank. Um, and Robinson was monetized. So his single most watched video alone at that rate, which is an underestimate, would have garnered $15,200 before it was shut down. Um, and he put out a lot of videos, so he made a lot of money. Uh, Stefan Molyneux, I think, made uh, a million pounds uh, in Bitcoin donations over a period of five years. I could go on. There's a whole series of them. But basically, um, the pattern is uh, not only that they make a lot of money, um, because you know the question would be, but doesn't everybody who becomes a success make a lot of money? The pattern is they do a lot better, a lot better than other political dentists, particularly the left. Um, there uh, was um, some data released recently which suggested that, for example, uh, those uh, sort of tendencies using the super chat function on YouTube, um, fascist uh, channels made twice as much as the left, at least twice as much, and many times more. Um, and that's, to me, there, that raises questions about, for example, might that be to do with um, a certain, um, say, the, the parasociality of online interaction? Do fascists um, or the far right um, or their likely uh, audience and recruits, do they have uh, a particularly monetized relationship to social interaction? Uh, because, you know, psychoanalysis would tell us that, you know, um, in a way, if you pay somebody money, 
um, for their interaction. You don't owe them anything. You don't have to feel guilty. Um, and, you know, you, it's a kind of antisocial way of uh, socializing. And I think that one of the things that's characteristic, uh, as Wendy Brown says, of today's far right is its sociophobia, is its fear of um, uh, being uh, related to others. So there might be something there. Um I wonder also if uh, they have just um, latched into some of the, let's say, libidinal intensities of uh, money money making uh, online. Because one of the things that they can do is, um, in a super chat, donate an amount of money like uh, I don't know, eighty eight dollars, which means uh, Heil Hitler, you know, something like that. You know, they can uh, code messages, white supremacist messages in their very donation, which would not otherwise be allowed on Twitter or on YouTube. You know, it would, it would be caught by the algorithm and filtered out. Um, so there's a certain jouissance in that. There's a certain um, enjoyment in um, breaking, uh, rebelling against the liberal superego. It's a very paltry rebellion, obviously. Um, so I think that there, there might be various ways in which um, the far right are just pr more predisposed towards um, generating money in this way. And also probably their audiences are a bit more affluent uh, than left-wing audiences. Um, I think that tends to be sociologically the case. Um, so, uh, but then there's also the question of, uh, is there something particularly about the social industry um, that is in favor of this kind of politicization. And I suppose what I was interested in when um, they were uh, doing all these articles and studies of uh, the algorithms and the up next function and all the rest of it, um, they sort of said, if you go on uh, social media and you start off watching Hillary Clinton video, you might end up um, with something like 9-11 truth. If you start off watching a Trump video, you might end up with Holocaust denial, basically. Or even if you start off watching like um, uh, something curious about uh, vegetarianism, you might end up with radical veganism, whatever the hell that is. So essentially, the logic is always takes you to the more extreme end. And maybe, I, I don't know if that's true, um, but that's what they say. And I, I assume that they've got some data supporting that claim. But that's an interesting idea. Um, and it suggests to me that um, there is something about uh, extreme, extreme content, extreme sport, you know, something about it that's more thrilling. And I suppose one of the things that happens on YouTube is, especially with the up next function, but not just for that, uh, with any suggested viewing uh, function, um, is you don't have to search for it. It'll put it right there in front of you. Uh, and, you know, the, the only reason it puts it there in front of you is because it uh, the algorithms have figured out that, you know, you'll click through. You'll click through and watch it. Um, but it will put the, there in front of you guilt-free. Um, and you can just go, oh, I'm just curious. I'm just going to see what these idiots are saying. And it's just, oh, my God, really? It never happened? You know, this kind of thing. Um, so um, I think that... Uh, there, there may be an element of that. I think also, and this is not just to do with uh, YouTube in particular, I think this is the whole social industry. I talked about the politics of identity earlier and its specific politics of identity. Generally speaking, um, when you get one of these online shitstorms, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, te it tends to be about something um, like... Um, uh, Gamergate, for example, or Birthergate, some issue that is politically overdetermined, 
um, and incredibly, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's culturally salient. It taps into something. So Gamergate tapped into the question of uh, feminism and its challenge to male dominance, in that case of the gamer industry, but more generally. Um, and the way in which that uh, storm was generated around that was such that um, it it stopped people from having any real conversation. It was the worst possible way in which you could actually clarify the issues, sort out real um, problems from bogus problems, and create some sort of, I'm not suggesting consensus, but um, polarize it in the direction where most people come over to on the right side, right? Instead, what you got was a lot of people hardening around an MRA position. In fact, I think basically the MRAs were consolidated precisely through Gamergate. Um, yeah, so and Berthergate, birth, you know, basically was the uh, basis for Trumpism and uh, you know his sort of uh, presidential bid. So I think that there's a tendency for these um, uh, for it to be act as a cultural accelerator um, and to polarize people not on a necessarily on a left right basis, but along certain cultural or identity axes where these things are tangled up with your personal cachet as a micro-celebrity and where you, um, you know, if you, if you, I don't know, if you try to take anything but a hard line and rally people around you, you're not going to get the likes, you're not going to get the retweets, you're not going to become, you're not going to build your cachet. So there's a tendency to ossify and harden cultural divisions um, in a way that actually I think the right tends to benefit from. It's interesting to me that the right, in, re in reaction to recent struggles, almost always tries to shift the argument onto some symbolic cultural terrain. Not that I think that's unimportant, but the fact that they tried to shift the argument about Black Lives Matter from police violence onto statues, uh, our past and our history, I think that says uh, a lot about how uh, these uh, culture wars actually break down. So there might be something about um, the nature of online culture wars that uh, tends towards a right-wing politicization. Mm, and I, th I think uh, what you were saying at the beginning about, you know, the supplements and like how a lot of these right wing figures are really just trying to sell people something that that suggests to me that what some of these people are operating in is they're they're kind of going along the grain of capitalism as a whole. And in a, this kind of modern world where you expect everyone to want to sell you something, every interaction you have on Twitter or Facebook, you know, you see an advertisement, even if it's like a brand saying that they care about social justice, you know, it's because they're trying to sell you something. And in a sense, we're all used to the idea that what people want from us is just, they want our money. And so because of that, you know, these, um, these all right figures, they're operating in a system that kind of suits them already. Like people are, are used to, you know, just spending money and then getting something in return. What the left is trying to do is a little more difficult and it kind of against the grain in the sense that we are trying to get people to question everything that exists, the horrors of this whole reality. And that's hard. That's not something where you can just whip out your credit card and then you're, you know, 24 hours later, you're happy. And I think that's like why it's difficult. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say, I mean, it's, it's worse than even than that. What we're asking people to do is to make a sacrifice because, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. you join a left wing party. Nobody's going to send you a little um, a bundle of gifts or fruit or something 
all we ask you to do is come and give up your time and your energy and you're not going to get anything. It's not like a client relationship. You're not necessarily going to get anything in return other perhaps than the chance, the fleeting chance at some opportune moments of fighting for some small measure of social change. I mean, uh, we are at a massive disadvantage to the right on this. Yeah, and it goes precisely against everything that has been instilled in us from childhood, just this idea that you should be successful, you should accumulate things, you should, you know, just be at the top the top of the career ladder or whatever. And the, what the left is saying is that no, all of this all of this is wrong. All of, you know, the whole value system that you've grown up under, that is something you should question. And that's, of course, not going to be an easy sell unless people are already, have already on their own come to terms with how profoundly alienating it is. And so I think, yeah, that goes, that goes quite a long way towards explaining why, because the left project is, uh, it's, you know, it's a, like almost like a negative sell in this current world. It's saying that everything you see around you, that's bad. You got to reject it. Um, but and it's hard and it's hard to do that in a way that gets through people's defenses while also responding to, you know, what they're, what they're actually feeling. Uh, so I think we're, we were pretty much out of time. I just wanted to wrap up with a closing question, um, inspired by the end of your book. And so at the beginning of the book, you kind of, you ask, what else could we be doing if not this? And at the end of the book, you, um, you end on a really nice personal note about, you know, and being, being at a park, watching the lily pads. Could you kind of give us, you know, more of a sense of like, what, what do you think we should be doing? What could we be doing if not all this? Um, well, first of all, that ending was a bit of a fantasy about, you know, because I had the idea that I would write this and I would write my way out of an addiction. You know, uh, I would at the end of it, I'd be like, well, I'm never going to go on Twitter again. And I'm like, well, I'm a, I'm a professional writer. I'm a petty bourgeois scribe working in neoliberalism 2.0. I make most of my money from Patreon. I need Twitter. So I'm stuck with this. Um, but um, OK, this um, this fantasy well, see, I think it's interesting. Ernst Bloch, um, who's a sort of interesting um, uh, sort of theorist, um, s described uh, how fascism uh, has a certain advantage over communists in as much as um, it has resourced, uh, recourse to something called he called non-contemporaneity, non-contemporaneity. There we go. Um, which is basically essentially lots of different temporalities being dragged into uh, our present day uh, sort of imaginary. So a lot of people believed, you know, things that would imply that they were living in the economy of the 1500s, you know, stuff about usury and things like that. Or they believed in ancient Norse blood and, you know, all sorts of stuff. OK, but this means that the fascists, although they had... Um, nothing but the most thinnest and opportunistic uh, series of lines by way of a theory or by way of a rational apprehension of the world, um, they had a strategy on the scene of fantasy. And this is where I would uh, like us to sort of refine our thinking about the social industry and about our place in it, because I can give you all the warnings in the world, um, and I can sort of talk about uh, the horror and I can suggest, you know, maybe uh, there are some writers who know more than I do about how to dismantle this power structure. I suspect you do. I know Lizzie O'Shea has written a good book about this. Um, but I think really we need to think about, well, I, I raised the question of minimum utopia. What else could we be doing if not this? Um, 
I really think the utopian imagination um, would be worth uh, fertilizing with regard to, I ask myself when writing this, what would a utopia of writing be like? If we're all scripturient, if we're all compelled to write relentlessly, um, I, I expect many people, if they weren't so addicted, would probably not bother writing, and that's fine. But there's some people who do like writing, and this system has um, stopped you from being able to enjoy it, uh, really enjoy it. And so how do you how do you reclaim that? And I think maybe it's, a, it's partly a question of not having to respond immediately to everything, not having to have uh, an opinion about everything, not having to know everything, uh, allowing yourself uh, what I suppose Keats called, you know, that negative capability of being able to live with not knowing for a while and not having all the answers. And I suppose if we can do that out of that, I suspect, I suspect some useful fantasies about how we can uh, live better are going to emerge. Um, I can't be any more specific than that because if I get too specific, we're going to lose the utopian dimension. I like that. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much, Richard, for for everything um, this this last hour and a half. And thank you to um, the Haymarket staff who've been working behind the scenes to make this happen. John, um, Charlotte for sending questions and Shari for taking care of closed captioning. I think this is, you know, I, I really appreciate the effort Haymarket has put in to make this accessible. Um, and you, thank you, Richard, for, for, uh, for, yeah, having this conversation. I've really appreciated the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.